Welcome to the New Books Network. Paul's epistle to the Romans is one of the most familiar New Testament books among Christians. And yet a major theme within the opening three chapters has largely gone unnoticed. Join us as we speak with Marcus A. Minninger, who developing a new approach has unearthed the theme of Revelation running through Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 3. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Dr. Marcus Minninger is Professor of New Testament Studies and Director of Institutional Assessment at Mid-American Reformed Seminary in Dyer, Indiana. Marcus, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So, Marcus, as is our custom, let's begin by having you tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah, well, that's um, so um, right now and for the last 12 years, I teach New Testament at Mid-America Reform Seminary in Dyer, Indiana. It's just basically in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, right across the state line. Um, And I teach throughout the New Testament curriculum there um, and uh, married to my wife, Shonda. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary and um, we have three kids, two of them are in college and one's still at home with us. Um, so those are some of the, the basics, I guess, background uh, training at Westminster Seminary and Princeton Seminary and so forth. Um, but yeah, I'm particularly specializing in the areas of Pauline studies and also a good bit in Hebrews. The opening chapters of Romans are quite familiar to many. And yet you offer a truly fresh approach to them, arguing that a major theme in Romans 1.16 through 3.26 has been neglected in scholarship. What is this theme and what first set you onto it in Romans? Yeah, well, the theme is uh, the theme of revelation. Of course, that's that theme itself, that word itself can be understood different ways. What I'm arguing is that um, this is really the, the organizing theme of the argument from 116 of Romans through 326. Of course, in 117, you have that statement, famous statement, that the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel, uh, and then that ekpisteos, ace piston, often translated different ways from faith to faith or something. Um, and so Paul obviously names the theme there, but it's not been systematically studied. It's been used sometimes, but not carefully studied particularly as something that is a constant theme in the rest of the argument from 118 through 326. Uh, There are people who certainly see it and see it in bits and pieces, but uh, one of the important things is that uh, from reading the argument closely, uh, um, I suggest that the kind of revelation that Paul is talking about here is not, say, revelation through prophecy or through some other spoken word, but it's actually a revelation, a visible revelation, things that are revealed in the observable condition of different people, different sets of people that he then goes on to describe. And um, so he's particularly sort of charting out what otherwise invisible things are visibly revealed in the condition, uh, observable condition of different sets of people, and then draws conclusions, both soteriological and social conclusions at certain points at least, from that. And so kind of saying that the theme of Revelation is sort of like the backbone. It's not the only thing that Paul's talking about, but it is what's structuring and driving the argument 
uh, off of which come other key conclusions about soteriology or um, who is saved and how they're saved and the power of the gospel and so and so forth. Um, and what set me onto it really, uh, it was it was happenstance from from my vantage point. I was really working on a different theme. I, uh, Beverly Gaventa, who at that time was at Princeton Seminary and a, a professor of mine, um, was uh, suggested that I look at the theme of the human body in Romans, which is actually also a very worthwhile theme to be studied. Um, but Paul has quite a lot of discourse about the human body, and it really is all throughout. And so the, the question was, you know, why is that there and what's the shape of it? And, and when I was trying to really study that in just the opening chapters, I kept running into exegetical questions that, I, of course, everybody's familiar with many of them, you know, the big challenges in Romans 2, what to make of Paul's argument there as it relates to Romans 3 and so forth. Um, but in particular, I noticed that the human body keeps being mentioned or things about it in relationship to what's visible and what it is contrasted at numerous places with what's internal to the person, their heart, their thoughts, other sorts of things that are invisible. And that, you know, led me to sort of start pulling on this thread of why all this epistemological language about visible and invisible, you can see it in uh, for example, 2, 14, 15, and 16, uh, 2, 28, and 29, very prominently. Uh, but then as you start expanding, that's that's kind of where I really started tugging on that theme. And then I was like, well, in 2, 5, he's talking about something that will be revealed in the future, so that's not yet revealed. And in 2, uh, 1, 18, 19, and 20, all three of those verses, as well as 1, 16, so really 1, Sorry, 117, 18, 19, and 20 all make very direct statements about things that are revealed. And then I went the other direction, and in 3 5 is talking about God's righteousness being demonstrated. Uh, 3 19 and 20 is talking about how the power of sin is known. So it's an epistemological issue. And then, of course, 321 through 26 is full of language about God's righteousness being uh, shown or, or uh, revealed. So it started to accrue and I realized that at every juncture, um, Paul is talking about a visible revelation, particularly, as I said, in most of the time in the condition of different people, their bodily condition or their observable actions. And of course that then takes a lot of demonstrating to show, but that's the theme. That's why I got onto it. Um, basically because I couldn't make sense of Romans 1 through 3. Um, and otherwise, I just kept you know banging my head against these long-known uh, perennial problems. But then I really unfolded, and I said, you know, wow, this really is in, this theme is present in every single passage in this section in very key locations, in theme statements for individual passages, theme statements for sections, conclusions, uh, etc. So it's consistently there, and it and it is, I think, the organizing theme. Uh, my thesis is that, that it's the organizing theme, and also that when you see that uh, fact and define that theme from within the argument, uh, the whole argument can really be better understood, and it, and it unfolds more clearly uh, with regard to a lot of the otherwise sort of constantly, you know, 
perennial deba perennially debated issues. One common view, which your research seeks to correct, is that Paul is not merely writing a general summary of the gospel in Romans 1 through 3. Why would the Apostle Paul address this concern about revelation to the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I do believe that the view that Paul is simply writing a, a systematic theology or a summary of his own teachings in Romans as a whole, or, or at least in portions of Romans, I think that view, while it's understandable, I see why people would say it, I think it has a pretty significant distorting factor in our interpretation. It sets expectations in our minds of what Paul must therefore be saying. And even you'll see in commentaries, they're kind of arguing backwards from, well, he, he has to be saying X because this is his summary of his gospel. And, and we kind of know somehow already what that gospel is from elsewhere. So he has to be saying X. Um, when that, that assertion that he has to be saying X, you know, is sits in tension with elements of the passage itself that the commentator is trying to explain. So I think that Paul Romans is very wide reaching and it's very carefully thought out. But I think it's much more selective. He's saying things that are uh, important to the circumstances in Rome. And so I think in particular, um, there's many, many things that could be said about that, about different parts of Romans. But when it comes to this particular theme, I think it especially has to do with Paul's trying to transform their worldview. Um, I think that they have a very outwardly oriented worldview towards external distinctions. And you can see the, the, the Roman audience, you can see that very clearly, for example, in Romans 14 and 15, where they're divided amongst themselves over questions of uh, observable distinctions and practices, such as what foods to eat or not to eat, what days to observe as holy or not. And those things are most likely... I. Most people think, I think, they relate to, in some way, to Jew-Gentile relationships, those controversies. Then you can walk backward into Romans 11 and other parts of 9 to 11 and see that this question of the distinct place of the Jewish people as an ethnic group in God's uh, historic purposes and, and his uh, working out of salvation is a big question to them. They are dealing with it from uh, in an outward empirical you know, observable way. Uh, and Paul's trying to say, uh, hold on, there are many things that are essential to the gospel, essential to your Christian identity that involve what's hidden. So if you just think about Romans 2, 28 and 29, for example, again, that's kind of one of the places that really kind of uh, stuck out to me first. But why does Paul state that the Jew is not manifest or visible, he uses that word phoneros, that adjective three times um, in those verses, but hidden, and that circumcision is also the same way, and that the praise of the Jew is not from people but from God. He's really orienting them away from a horizontal person-to-person, human-to-human orientation um, as far as identifying even what constitute truly constitutes Jewish identity and then um, that would be an example of how they need to think about the fact that external distinctions of these sorts that were enshrined within the law for the sake of uh, among other things but very importantly uh, differentiating Jews from Gentiles uh, while they had their role 
in redemptive history, they are not of the essence of the thing itself, that the essence of Jewishness even, and then certainly the essence of Christian identity is identified inwardly. And so these outward distinctions need to be put in their proper place. He doesn't obliterate the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, but he does relativize their importance uh, compared to what many people thought their importance was within the context of the church and the work of the gospel. So I think that this theme of revelation, which has to do with what is presently visible and what is not yet visible until the future day of the Lord uh, upon Christ's return, is crucial uh, among other reasons because it has very significant ecclesiastical uh, implications or social implications for the Romans. So that would be the big answer. There's other answers, I think, as well. Um, but um, one of the things that I talk about along the way is that I agree with many other people that Romans seems to have in the background um, something like the wisdom of Solomon as an interlocutor that that the uh, faulty ways of thinking that Paul's seeking to correct in the Romans um, worldview uh, at least are similar to what uh, what you can observe as a, a particular Jewish way of thinking in wisdom of Solomon and wisdom of Solomon is is very oriented uh, towards the observable distinctions between Israel historically and all other people groups, right? Um, and how that distinction is enshrined in events in redemptive history, like the Exodus, where the Egyptians were punished and the Israelites were freed, or things that happened in the wilderness or in subsequent events where Israel's enemies were punished, but Israel was preserved. And so it's kind of making an argument that the um, ultimate and eternal difference between Jews and Gentiles, a difference that it sees as being of eternal significance uh, for salvation, is visibly observable right off the pages of history. And Paul's really con um, taking, uh, contradicting that, um, taking a different view and seeking to, I think, renew and refresh and redirect the thinking of the Roman people in a different way through this theme. Marcus, would you walk us through the development of the Revelation theme in the opening chapters of Romans? That's a hard thing to do in a way because there's there's tons of detail there, um, but obviously the book lays it out in in uh, all that you know detail. Um, but in in broad strokes, um, the theme is stated in Romans one seventeen for the first time that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel and it's revealed. So that's that's where it's revealed in the gospel, and then it's revealed in a particular way from pistis to pistis and then you get into what that means um and and paul makes that statement in support of his prior statement in 116 that the gospel is god's power unto salvation so he says the gospel is the power of god unto salvation for all who believe to the jew first and also to the greek so those are all these crucial themes of romans and then his first and principal supporting reason in 117 is what it is that is revealed in the gospel then after he makes that big statement, he backs up some, and in one eighteen, he, instead of developing directly and immediately the theme of revelation or the, the, the revelation of God's righteousness, he instead talks first about a distinct, different, and quite contrasting revelation, the current revelation of God's wrath in the lives of some people whom he has... Uh, handed over to the unrighteousness that and uncleanness that they've chosen. So I, I reread 118 through 32 very carefully to, to show how all throughout the power of God is at work 
not into salvation, but uh, in a wrathful way, that uh, as he hands the people being described there over to unrighteousness, they uh, manifest the, the results of that quite clearly and observably in their own behavior and condition and character, even their bodily con- behavior and, con- and condition, like 124 of Romans says, God handed them over uh, in the desires of their heart to uncleanness, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And so the observable condition of their bodies being dishonored is the result of God's having handed them over, and therefore it is a manifestation or a visible display of results of God's wrath. So his wrath is revealed visibly in uh, what results from his having handed them over in their outward and observable condition. So that would be an example of the theme there, revelation of God's wrath. And then the, the tricky part and the and sort of the very interesting, I think, profound part comes in chapter 2. So Paul's set out several different things that are revealed and presently revealed, already revealed in Romans 1. Romans 2 really shifts to talk about things that are not yet revealed but presently remain hidden. The big feature there, Romans 1, uh, sorry, Romans 2, 5, uh, is that God's um, righteous judgment is not currently revealed but will be revealed in the future. And what that means, essentially what happens rhetorically in Romans 2 is Paul introduces um, an interlocutor who is judging the people in Romans 1 to, on the basis of a clear distinction between himself and them. Romans 2.4 makes this clear that this interlocutor looks at the wrath already being experienced by some people in Romans 1 and then contrasts that with the patience and mercy and kindness that the interlocutor himself presently experiences from God. So he's like, there's a present difference. It's very clear. Some people are being handed over to their sin, and I'm being shown patience and kindness even though I sin. Therefore, clearly God thinks of us differently, treats us differently, and I'm, you know, doing fine. Uh, and, And the interlocutor believes that that present distinction between other people and himself, uh, God's wrath against others, but his patience towards himself is an eternal distinction. So Paul says, yeah, but what you're doing is you're just in effect despising the real purpose of God's patience because he's being patient in order to lead you to repentance in view of this great future day of further revelation. Yes, God's wrath is already observable against some in Romans, as just described in Romans 1, but his full righteous judgment, the extent of it and the um, thoroughness of it it's that Paul then goes on to describe will only be revealed on the future day of wrath and revelation, as he says in 2.5, and then he describes that future day of wrath and revelation in 6-11. through 11, And he uses a, 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 that future day and uh, as a way of saying, you, this interlocutor, you're being presumptuous. You're taking what is visible now as an eternal difference, but it's not because there's this future day of things not yet revealed that will be revealed. And he says in uh, 2.16 that that future day of revelation will even go to the judgment of the in thoughts and intentions of the heart. Um, and so it's, it's thoroughgoing all the way down to the heart. And then he goes on in the rest of chapter 2 to take on a different set of claims, maybe a different interlocutor, maybe it's the same interlocutor, but it's at least a different set of claims 
which are very clearly from a Jewish person who appeals to the outward distinction of circumcision. And then Paul says, well, that outward distinction uh, isn't really the essence of the matter. What's the essence of the matter is something hidden and invisible only or known only to God. So he undermines that set of claims again on appeal to what's not currently visible but remains still hidden. Then in 3, 1 through 8, he he it's a very curious section where he weaves his argument in a new and begins weaving in a positive direction. He entertains some objections against the the integrity of his argument and so forth. Uh, you know, is circumcision nullified and is the Jew nullified? No, you know, may it never be, etc. But he goes on then to essentially say, well, if circumcision itself, flesh circumcision, isn't what defines the Jew properly, as I just argued in chapter two, what does define the Jew properly, and and or do you end up just obliterating Jewish identity? And he says says no. Uh, essentially, he appeals to David's own example in Psalm fifty one, a psalm of repentance, and said, in the life of David, who sinned but then repented and sought forgiveness, there is where you see the righteousness of God demonstrated. Uh, in sort of an inverse way, by contrast to David. So in other words, David demonstrates God's good righteousness in contrast to himself when David himself acknowledges his own sinfulness and appeals to God in mercy for cleansing. And so essentially what Paul does in 3, 1 through 8 is positively define the uh, nature of Jewish identity uh, uh, in and the privilege of the Jew in repentance and oracles about repentance, like Psalm 51, which, of course, the Old Testament clearly defines repentance as a matter of the heart, in other words, as a matter of something inward that God alone knows in any infallible way, right? Then 3, 9 through 20, uh, he gives an extensive discussion of what is visible within the Jewish community historically. Uh, in other words, if, um, if Jewish identity is not uh, defined ultimately by flesh circumcision, but by repentance. Um, what uh, do you see in the sphere of the law? What difference has the law made, essentially? And he says, what the law has done is to catalog the instances of sin throughout the life of the Jewish people and, and the in the sphere of the law's own working in the Old Testament. So he gives that long series of quotations from Scripture uh, in three ten through eighteen, and his conclusion is that through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, in a sense, you could say the law reveals, or shows, or demonstrates the the existence of sin as this pernicious power at work, even within the law's own domain and jurisdiction. Which clearly shows that if those who have the law and its benefits are still filled with the effects of sin inwardly and outwardly, as he catalogs there the the inward of the mind and the heart and the thoughts and intentions, et cetera, and the outward of the lips and the feet and the, and uh, so forth. The uh, he names all these body parts. If the law, if the power of sin is clearly at work throughout the human person in the domain of the law, then clearly the law is not a proper antidote to sin, and something else needs is needed. And he turns that corner into three twenty one through twenty six and says, "Okay, here is the climactic saving revelation of God's righteousness, and it comes." In the bloody death of of Christ, and so he says in twenty four, twenty five, twenty six, that uh, God handed Christ over as a propitiation, and uh, that uh, in the blood of Christ, then 
as this sort of visible demonstration of God's having handed him over, uh, God's righteousness is finally demonstrated, revealed. He says it at least three times, arguably four in that passage. So in the end, God's righteousness, the nature of it is visibly displayed for all the world to see, particularly in the cross of Jesus as an atoning death. Um, so there's lots more details. And what I try to say is, if you take this as the theme and you see it, you define it this way from within Romans and you see it unfolding uh, kind of blow by blow in the way I just briefly summarized, it really makes tons of other things make sense exegetically. And, and among other things, it really makes, I think, the relationship between Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3 come clearly into view in a way that's different than has been seen previously. It's much more integrated. You know, as I'm sure your listeners know, uh, there's been a huge amount of debate, and many people just conclude that Paul's being contradictory. Uh, Romans 2 says one thing, Romans 3 says another thing. Paul's not being logically consistent. He's just trying to achieve a certain rhetorical goal. Um, that's not really a very satisfying way to think. You know, it's a hugely expensive and effort-intensive you know, enterprise for Paul to write this letter. Most people don't really find that very satisfying. I don't find it satisfying. But I think, you know, if you read it this way, in my opinion... Uh, at least what I found was it goes together in a very integrated way. So how does the theme of Revelation play out in the rest of the epistle to the Romans? Yeah, well, in some ways that's uh, thankfully a little less broad because it's not actually an, a huge theme in the rest of, it's not a dominating or organizing theme in the rest of the letter, in my opinion. It is present, it's present in some crucial places, but I write on 116 through 326, I try to lay it out in the introductory chapter, why these chapters in particular, or why these verses in particular, it really is densely clustered there, and it shows itself to be the organizing theme there. It shows up later as well, but um, Paul does move on to other organizing themes, so it's not as densely saturated, excuse me, but um, I would say some of the particular places it especially shows up, um, and and I think there are others, but the the big places it shows up would be Romans 5, 8, where it says God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Uh, so again, there it's the death of Christ that's a visible demonstration of something otherwise invisible. In that case, the thing that's otherwise invisible that Paul names is God's love, not his righteousness. So both the righteousness and the love of God are, uh, are both uh, visibly demonstrated in the cross of Christ. Um then um, there's some pieces in Romans 7 that I think are related, but the the, the bigger thing, clearer thing, would be Romans 8, uh, 18, 19, 20. There's two things there. Um, one is the future revelation of glory of the, of the future day of Christ, and the other, which is, I think, even more um, kind of richly, has rich implications in Romans itself, is uh, the future revelation of the sons of God or the children of God. Uh, there, Paul really gives a companion statement to Romans 2, 28 and 29. In 2, 28 and 29, he said the Jew is not manifest or visible, but instead hidden, defined by something inward. And in uh, Romans eight nineteen, he says that the sons of God are the children of God, meaning Christians in the New Covenant period, whether Jews or Gentiles, uh, are also defined by something that's presently hidden, the Holy Spirit at work, present and at work within their hearts, as he describes elsewhere in chapter 8. And that only in the future day of the resurrection, which he specifically describes in Romans uh, 8.24, 
will those children of God be visible? So the point would be that presently we're identified by something that's inward and therefore by the nature of the case hidden, but ultimately in the future we'll be also identified by something that is a companion to that. That inward reality of the Spirit will be um, uh, linked in the future to the outward reality of resurrected and transformed bodies. And so in a very literal sense that children of God will be revealed, will be visible, will be able, you'll be able to tell by looking at them who they are because of that glory, which to uh, verse 18 also mentions. So there's that future horizon, what's presently hidden, but what will be revealed in the future. And then another uh, similar thing in Romans 9, 22 and 23, Paul talks about, it's, it's very closely related to all the rest, but he talks about vessels of wrath with whom God is presently being patient. Um, for the sake of the future demonstration of wrath, but also, and of course, uh, more importantly for the overall argument, the future demonstration of his mercy to vessels of mercy prepared for glory. So again, um, Paul makes the point um, that the, the ultimate outcome of salvation or of judgment isn't visible at the present time, and it's not visible because of God's current Dis, uh, dispensation or, or economy of patience. God is not making it visible. Why? Because of the, the necessity of the work of the gospel and the work of the gospel as 924 goes on to say for both Jews and Gentiles. So it's really the gospel mission that is the reason for this patience that can yet bring more people to repentance um, that is um, woven, that this theme of revelation is woven into those would be the main places I see the theme. You could back up a little bit in Romans 9 and talk about God raising up Pharaoh in order to show uh, his wrath through Pharaoh would be another instance. There's some other smaller ones, but those are the big ones. What else are you working on these days in terms of publication? Yeah, well, um, I have read a little bit on Romans. I'm sort of percolating over a, um, a thesis, a, kind of a new approach to Romans 7.14, it's kind of a, a new way of figuring out how Romans 6 and Romans 7 relate to each other, the sort of freedom and redemption of God's children in Romans 7, and yet there's a discussion of this I in Romans, sorry, in Romans 6, the discussion of this I figure who is, um, says that he's um, in some way still experiencing so many of the effects of sin. So Romans 7, 14, but I, I, that's going to be a future project. Most recently, I've actually been working in Hebrews. Um, i uh, written a, a manuscript that i still dialoguing with publishers about. I hope uh, it'll come out in the not-too-distant future about the uh, nature of the temptation that faces the audience in Hebrews and then the nature of the warning that the author gives them, particularly that gives them about the sort of apostasy warnings. So Romans sorry, Hebrews 6, um, that famous statement that it's impossible for some people who have experienced certain things, been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and so forth, uh, and then have fallen away, it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance. Um, so I've wrestled with that for years and, and have developed kind of a new take on that, a more redemptive historical take on that. Um, so that's hopefully... It's written. We'll see if uh, I can navigate it through all the publishers. But that's where I've been recently. Um, and essentially, I'm trying to argue that it's not an unforgivable sin text. It's not really what it's describing. It's doing something really talking about the, the relationship between the Old and the New Covenants and 
that it's impossible of someone for someone to fall away from the new covenant and be restored repentantly to right standing in the old covenant because the old covenant is designed to lead to the new covenant by its very nature as hebrews it goes on to describe so it's kind of a one-way traffic only uh design to those two covenants and so once you've been enlightened about embraced understood been blessed within the context of the new covenant you can't return to right standing with god under the old only so that takes its own detail argument to try to show but that's what that book's about hoping to come back to romans i'm actually hoping to uh, probably do a, an abridgment of my dissertation for a more popular audience pastors and and lay people that ask for it or, or ask about it wish it was more accessible so i'm hoping to do that and then probably move on to romans 7 uh just so to take on something really easy you know especially debated texts seem to be the ones that uh get my attention for better or for worse but marcus all the best on those endeavors and thank you for being with us and sharing the fruits of your research yeah no problem yeah you're welcome glad to be on friends thank you for listening to new books and biblical studies a channel of the new books network Until next time, goodbye.